Welcome to It's All About the Questions, where learning to ask the right questions can help you achieve lifelong success. Now, here to help you ask all the right questions is award-winning author, international speaker, and business strategist, Laura Stewart. Good morning, afternoon, and evening, everyone. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the show today. I am so excited because... I'm not a news junkie. I actually like avoid the news most of the time because I grew up in the Walter Cronkite era and you could believe the news as it was presented. You didn't have to worry as much about bias or things like that. And today, living in the United States, since I know I have a lot of international listeners, you know that there is a lot of controversy going on in the world of news here um, with our president. Um, if you live in England, the whole Brexit um, that just announced there's a lot of stuff that's going on that how do you know if what you're reading on in the newspaper on the in uh, on the internet or even just watching TV news whether it's accurate or not so I'm excited today because my good friend Stanford Erickson introduced me to my guest today and it's like I'm, I'm like salivating at the fact that I get to ask this man questions today his name is Paul Janish and he is a retired um, innovative newspaper editor, journalist. Um, he was a professor of communications at Quinnipiac College. He has interviewed some of the biggest names in our history. Dr. Martin Luther King um, he, it, being one of them. He was there at the first press conference for the Beatles. He's interviewed Diane Sawyer. He actually presented to Vladimir Putin when he wasn't yet the head of Russia. <laughs> He, so there's there's a lot going on with this man right in front of me. So, Paul, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. It's exciting for me because, you know, I believe that what we're seeing and hearing nowadays in the news is not accurate like it used to be. And you're a master at asking questions, which this show is all about the questions. What is it that we need to begin asking ourselves now? about the information we're being fed. I will get to that. Let me give you a little background. Uh, you said something interesting at the beginning about there's so much bias in the news now, and you look back on the Cronkite years with great affection and would like to return to that. Uh, when this country was started, uh, there was no such thing as reliable news. There were newspapers that were highly personal that reflected the views of the owner, the printer uh, of the publication, and they were they were very partisan and they were very unreliable. The pro-Jeffersonian press referred to George Washington as a drunk and a tyrant. Can you believe that? I, I actually can because I've read some historical <laughs> okay, well, then books about that. You can believe that. it, but I think many yeah. people find that shocking. And the Federalist press referred to Jefferson as immoral and accused him of having a black slave mistress who had borne him children. And that was considered to be shocking. Of course, that turned out to be true. Very true. As we know now yes. from a DNA evidence of the descendants of Sally Hemings. Uh, but it was considered to be scurrilous and, and untrue until uh, recent years. And that's the way the press was until the 1890s. And then this idea of uh, objectivity came in uh, for commercial reasons. Uh, big city publishers decided we could make more money by selling newspapers to the broad general 
readership rather than just the people who agreed with us politically. And so that's when there's separation, or at least theoretic, theoretical separation of news and opinion became dominant with newspapers and it was carried over into radio and television. Yes, have opinion in newspapers on the editorial page and with columnists, but straight uh, reporting should be objective and not take sides. Now, immediately one could say, well, newspapers didn't always follow that ideal model, and that's true. Newspapers did uh, often in their news coverage did reflect the leanings of the proprietor or the editor, but at least that was the ideal. And to a great extent, newspapers today follow that uh, model, and so to a great deal do television and radio. But it, there has been a blurring between news and opinion. Uh, Probably the Cronkite era was the end of the golden age of objectivity, and we have uh, we were sliding into sort of the old days of mixing opinion and news. And what I'd like to do in our conversation is help your listeners decide what is what is reliable news and what is not reliable news. And I think that's really important because it doesn't just apply to news, right? Like with Walter Cronkite, Peter Jennings, and some of the Diane Sawyer, who I just would love to meet someday because I totally respect that woman and everything she's accomplished. But in all aspects of life, right, as you present yourself as a business owner, as a person in the world, are you presenting yourself as the facts and authenticity or are you putting some sort of fake veneer around you as what you want the world to perceive you as. So it's two sides of the same kind of coin, Paul. If I were, this is what I recommend that people do, and I have made this recommendation, a set of recommendations to individuals I meet and to groups that I have spoken to and to readers when I've written a guest column for a newspaper. And if they want a straight reliable news and not just opinion that reinforces their own beliefs is to ask themselves some questions while they're consuming the news. Uh, For example, does this news provider, whether it's a newspaper or a television news program or a radio news program or internet, uh, is this news provider reliable and have a reputation for reliability and is this news provider independent of political party uh, or of a or of a cause, and I would say, and there are people who disagree with me, that the major newspapers in our country are reliable. Doesn't mean they never make mistakes. They do make mistakes, but the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Miami Herald, uh, the Los Angeles Times, I think are reliable, and I think they're websites are too because they are reflections of the printed product. I think ABC, CBS, and NBC for the most part put on reliable news programs and news magazines. Uh, yes, you can point to, well, this wasn't this was biased or that was biased, but in general I think they do present uh, reliable and accurate information. Well, what about, if, I'm just going to interject here, the BBC You know, I hear all the time that in America, if we want to hear what's really going on in the world, we should listen to the BBC. Well, the BBC is very good, and I relied on it when I lived in Russia 
lived and worked in Russia, and we'll talk about this more, in 94 and 95 during the Yeltsin years. Uh, my Russian wasn't good enough to listen to Russian radio okay. or watch Russian TV, although I did for the to, for the images, the Russian TV. And I listened to the BBC every morning, their international service, to know what was going on in the world, and it was extremely reliable. Uh, it is government-owned uh, uh in the long run, there, it's own, it is controlled by a BBC authority, which is independent of political considerations, but basically it's owned by the government. And even so, it's very reliable. And if there is news that is unfavorable to the government at that time, whichever party is in charge in Parliament, uh, the news reporting on the BBC is very reliable. I don't know if it's better than ABC, CBS, and NBC, but it is very good. And if somebody likes to listen to the BBC to get accurate news from around the world, that's a good provider. You know, I'm probably... um I, I switch back and forth. So in the evening, it's ABC News for me. But morning show-wise, I like CBS Morning News because I feel like I actually get my news and not just fluff, which I do the enjoy. morning shows? The morning shows. I, th- I agree with you. Uh, and in general, I would say CBS is the most traditional. Uh, Scott Pelley's uh, the, the anchor in the evening. Uh, the same with the the morning show is uh, a reflection of the evening newscast. I think they're both more news oriented. Uh, the the Today Show on NBC and Good Morning America are a combination of news and entertainment. I don't think the news on those programs is unreliable. It's just that there's not as much emphasis on the news on those morning shows as there is on the CBS morning show. So one of the things that I'd like everybody to think about as we go into our first commercial break is are you watching the news or filtering the news through their bias or your bias? We'll be right back with more from Paul Janis. Paul, you are giving us some questions that we need to ask ourselves while we're digesting news. And one of the ones that really stuck with me was this whole idea of figuring out if there's bias from the news, how to determine if a news outlet is reliable, um, and, you know, also where their facts are coming from. I believe, I think that that leads a lot into it. You know, we heard throughout every um, campaign that was going on about these polls, and, and now we constantly hear in the news, not only here in America, but with stuff going on in, in, Lund- in England and everything, well, you know, maybe the polls weren't accurate. Well, how do you know if that the statistics you're being given are accurate or not? All right, let me talk about public opinion polling, and I have never been involved with it directly, but I was a professor of communications at Quinnipiac University in Connecticut, which is famous in Florida and around the country for the Quinnipiac poll, which is one of the five or six most prominent, most respected public opinion polling services. And while I've never been directly affiliated with the Quinnipiac poll, I know all the people who run it, and I'm familiar with their procedures. Uh, Polling did become a big issue in the last presidential campaign, and uh, many people think the polls were wrong because uh, as they were, the results of the polling were conveyed by journalists uh, on television and on radio and in print. Uh, The polls seemed to indicate that Hillary Clinton would win Electoral college as well as popular vote, and that 
Donald Trump would lose both Electoral College and popular vote. And as it turned out, of course, Donald Trump won the Electoral vote, although uh, he never refers to the fact that he lost the popular vote. But that's not how we elect a president under our system. It's the Electoral vote that counts. Had Hillary carried Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, as the polls, all of the polls predicted she would, she would have won the election in the Electoral College as well as the popular vote. And the polls were wrong in those states if you take the polls as being predictive. And that's the big mistake the news media made, frankly. The news media should have emphasized when they cited one of the polls, Gallup or uh, Quinnipiac University, and in a moment I'll tell you which polls to rely on. They should have said, this is how people felt in this state at that time and say when the poll was taken. It doesn't necessarily predict the results of an election because people can change their minds. People who say they'll vote for candidate X may not vote. And people who say they don't plan to vote do vote and they vote for candidate Y. So things can change between the time of the poll and the time of the election for various reasons. Uh, uh, Any poll that's associated with a university or uh, an independent uh, business entity is reliable. And there's like five or six of them. And let me tell you about polls that are not reliable. Okay. Uh, Anytime you hear a poll that was taken by a candidate or a party, don't take it seriously. (laughs) (laughs) That sort of makes sense. It Uh, makes a lot of sense. For one thing, uh, sometimes these internal political polls taken by a party uh, are not accurate and and they mislead the the party that commissioned the poll uh, because uh, the pollsters get in the habit of telling the client what the client wants to hear and this is a mistake Karl Rove made in the election presidential election four years ago almost five years ago when he couldn't believe that uh, and he was live on Fox Television at the time, uh, this uh, Republican strategist, Karl Rove, he couldn't believe that uh, Romney was losing to Obama because his polls indicated that Romney was going to win Ohio and therefore win the election. And when Fox News, uh, when he was on the set, uh, the decision desk said Obama carries Ohio and therefore wins the election, he didn't believe it. And he was wrong because he was relying, he should know better, but he was relying on this internal poll, which apparently had told him what he wanted to hear. Well, so that, don't don't rely on those. There's another poll not to rely on. It's more familiar to people. Anytime you're invited to vote by calling a phone number, this is usually done on television, but sometimes in newspapers or radio, you call a certain to- uh, phone number if you vote yes on this question, you call another number if you vote no, or you click on a website. You vote, click on uh, on yes if that's the way you feel about this issue, and you click no if that's the way you feel. This is not scientific polling. This is an effect ballot box stuffing, and and is not predictive at all, and is not an accurate reflection of how a representative sample of the public feels about something. It just reflects how people who took the trouble to click 
or to phone how they feel about an issue. So don't take those seriously. And I'm sorry to say there are newspapers that are otherwise, I think, reliable that run these so-called readership polls. Don't believe them. I remember um, I have a degree in computer science, so I had to take a lot of math and programming classes and a lot of science classes. And I took multiple semesters of statistics. And I still, I was at New York Institute of Technology on Long Island. I still remember my statistics professor to this day saying to me, you can manipulate any statistic to say anything you want it to say. And the biggest way you do that is by skewing the way you ask the question that gets you the statistics. As a journalist, you ask a lot of questions. On the radio, I ask a lot of questions of people. And in my book, one of the big things I say is, if you ask questions to get the answer you want, that's exactly what you're going to get. It's not necessarily the answer you need. So looking at the data from the polls and, and that information you're saying, how do my listeners know the right questions perhaps they should be asking? Like taking this from just the pure fake news journalistic to asking questions to help them get the answers that they need. Well, you're right about, we'll talk about the polling first, you're right about that's one of the crucial elements of polling is the phrasing of the question. And I have been consulted from time to time when I was a journalist and a professor of journalism about um, how to phrase a question so that it was neutral and and not um, leading the person being interviewed to give a certain answer. Uh, The other thing that I want to mention that's the second crucial element of polling is the sample. Who is being polled? Is it a representation of this segment of the public? Uh, registered voters or Republicans or Democrats or women or men or teenagers or whatever? Is it a representative sample? Or is is it uh, self-selected? And that's the fake polls where people call a number or they click yes or no, those are fake polls, and they don't necessarily, in fact, they never are a representative sample. Now, back to questioning, it's it's, uh, to ask a question in a neutral way so that there's not a wrong or right answer. You want the person being interviewed, whether you're a reporter or whether you're a pollster, to give an honest answer and not just to please you. So uh, I learned as a reporter to... Uh, ask neutral questions and not, here's a ridiculous example, not say, uh, I guess you're really in favor of this um, superior uh, approach, aren't you? (laughs) It's hard to say no to that. Well, that's an extreme example, but there's a lot of, we have to be careful. Uh, Journalists have to be careful. Anybody has to be careful asking questions when you want an honest answer uh, to ask the question in a neutral way so the person doesn't feel, oh, there's a right answer and there's a wrong answer and I want this to be a pleasant exchange so I'm going to give the right answer. I remember watching Barbara Walters do interviews and we always see the edited segments, right? We never see the other stuff that's going on unless they're doing a live interview And it was always fascinating to watch how she formulated the question to make them give her the answer that was the truth versus what they necessarily wanted to say. And she would phrase the question in such a way that they couldn't really avoid giving a truth answer. And and I respect journalists so much for that. We're going to come back right after the news break and talk more with Paul Janish uh, about 
how to ask questions. He's a, a worldwide expert, ask questions of some amazing people, and he's going to tell us a story about Dr. Martin Luther King. We'll be right back. All right, I teased you before the news break with a story about Dr. Martin Luther King that's about to come. Paul marched alongside, not as a march, but he was there um, as a journalist inter- to interview and talk about the march next to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. What was that like? And and you told me a story when we were talking way before the show, prepping for the interview, about something about him himself as a man that made him such a, a powerful presence in interview. Uh, when I was a reporter for the Louisville, and I said it correctly, <laughs> uh, other people, Louisville Courier-Journal, uh, that was my first newspaper job. It was my third job in journalism, but my first newspaper job, a very distinguished newspaper, particularly back then under family ownership, and uh, uh, was always recognized as one of the best newspapers in the country, and it was quite an honor to be hired by the Courier-Journal out of Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism. And uh, early on, uh, I was uh, uh, I done well as a general assignment reporter, and I was asked to uh, take on the civil rights beat, uh, which was something new because the civil. this is back in the 60s. I graduated in 64 from Columbia, and the civil rights movement was just really getting started in the South. And King was emerging as this key figure. And I met King several times in Louisville because his brother was a pastor in Louisville, uh, uh, his name was A.D. Williams King. Everybody called him A.D. And he was uh, a prominent local civil rights leader, leading lunchroom demonstrations and that sort of thing. Nothing violent, but but uh, protest uh, uh, seeking uh, equal rights. And occasionally Martin would come up from Atlanta to visit A.D. And once Martin Luther King Sr. came, there was a Martin Luther King Sr., and he was still alive, and he was still preaching. And uh, when this would happen, A.D. would call me at the newsroom, and he'd say, uh, uh, Paul, uh, my brother Martin is coming uh, to preach at my church, and uh, you're invited to come and hear him, and then uh, we can all get together in the office afterwards. And one time he said, and, and my, our father is coming, too. And uh, so I would go down to the church, and, and I'd sit through the service, and I would hear A.D. preach, and occasionally Martin Luther King Jr. would preach. And then this one time, Sr. preached briefly as well. And then we all went to the office, and I, I called the newsroom, and I said, get a photographer down here right away. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> this is a, a historic photo we can get with right. the two brothers and the father. So I don't want to mislead you. We weren't. I wasn't a close friend of Martin Luther King, I, and— I didn't want to be. I, I wanted to cover him as an independent journalist. But I liked being up close to him and getting to see what he was like. And he uh, knew who I was. And I think we had kind of a mutual respect for each other. So the Selma March started. And originally, we didn't have a reporter down there from the Louisville Courier-Journal. That was expensive. It was a national story, and we were relying on the Associated Press and the New York Times and other news services. And I complained to my editor, the city editor, the local news editor, that we weren't getting the human side of this drama. They'd already had the confrontation on the bridge 
where uh, people were injured. And there was a second march that was called off by Martin Luther King Jr. because he was afraid of more violence. And then the third march uh, got underway. And that's what I was complaining about, the coverage of that. There was no human element. The, the, they had the statistics, and they started marching at such and such a time, and they ended at such and such a time, and there's so many people involved, and so on. Uh, but there was no—I thought it was a great human story as well. And the city editor said, do you think you could do better? And I said, yeah, I do. So I was uh, pretty cocky. So you got to be a part and of so history. He, he called my bluff, and he sent me down with a photographer. And uh, so we joined the march when it was underway, after a day, it had been underway for a couple of days. And we, we stayed with the march as uh, observers, uh, I a writer and he a photographer, uh, for, into Montgomery and, and hung around Montgomery for a few days to see what happened there. And uh, occasionally I was able to go up to the front of the march as an observer with my pad and pencil, and watch King and his lieutenants up close. And uh, there was a revealing uh, episode where we were crossing from one county into another, and a sheriff appeared and and put his hands up and, and called a halt to the march. And King uh, went along with us, and they called the halt to the march. And here's this huge line of marchers all standing on the side of the highway, and uh, King is face-to-face uh, uh, -face with this sheriff who's wearing reflector sunglasses and a Stetson and a brown uniform and wearing a revolver on his belt. And uh, the sheriff said, uh, uh, we don't want any violence. And uh, I won't try to imitate his accent. And K King uh, w stood there and f looked at him, uh, didn't smile, didn't frown, just looked at him in an unthreatening way and said uh, that our intention is to be nonviolent. This is a peaceful march. Uh, we have the National Guard protecting us. Uh, we, The President of the United States knows we're marching and has not objected. And we, we intend to continue the march uh, forthwith, sir. And the uh, sheriff uh, smiled kind of crookedly and stepped back and waved him on. And the march continued. And this happened more than once, but I, I saw it happen this one time. And this is what it told me about King. It actually reinforced my impression, but very strongly. First of all, he was extremely polite, even under stressful circumstances. I'm sure he was tempted to, to tell the sheriff, to go take a hike, to put yeah, it mildly. It put it but mildly. he didn't. He didn't. You could see his lieutenants were agitated, you know, and they wanted Martin to say something harsh, but he didn't. He was polite, but he was also firm. And he had a steel core, and he wasn't going to stop the march just because his sheriff told him to. He was going to continue the march because uh, it had, in effect, federal uh, endorsement, National Guard protecting the line of march and so please step aside so we can continue and and the sheriff did step aside and they did continue so king was very uh, polite uh, i think under all circumstances uh, but he was firm and determined and i think that's what made him a successful leader now something else happened on okay. the march that i think was revealing and that was uh one time was when i was up front with dr king and the others uh, taking notes, 
uh, one of his junior lieutenants who had been away from the march came running up uh, while uh, everybody was marching and ran up to King and said, Dr. King, Dr. King, did you hear what Stokely Carmichael just said on radio? And King said, well, no, I'm busy marching. And this young fellow said, well, Stokely, and if your listeners don't remember, Stokely Carmichael was a radical black leader, head of SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, except it wasn't very nonviolent. It was very violent. And he would, he would refer to whites as the white devils and that kind of thing, the oppressors. And he had said something at a press conference, you know, about white devils and we have to uh, topple the white devils and something very inflammatory. And that's why this young lieutenant of King was so upset and relayed this to King. And King said something very revealing. Everybody sort of gathered in a circle, and his lieutenants, what's he going to say? And Martin Luther King, and I'm going to try to imitate his rolling baritone, said just three words. We need Stokely. And what he meant was, and we all took it this way, and we confirmed it among ourselves later, what he meant was, Stokely, we need a radical over on the far left, because I, Martin Luther King, am a better alternative for the white establishment. And if they don't like dealing with me, how would they like to deal with Stokely Carmichael? And that is the way President Johnson and uh, other national leaders saw this choice. Uh, We don't agree with everything King says and stands for, but we can deal with him. Uh, Stokely Carmichael, we can't deal with him. And I think this gave, uh, having Stokely Carmichael saying these inflammatory things, gave King credibility and um, respect that he wouldn't have had otherwise. Well, we need Stokely. I, I, I like the idea of that story because I didn't know that story, right? And it sort of shifts my perceptions of Dr. Martin Luther King as a man and the journalists as well because it's a balance point. And it's looking at not just what's in front of you but all the things to all the other sides. And I think it's important to look at all the different pieces to a picture when you're deciding which is the path you need to go down, which is the one that most fits with where your goals are and where you want to take things. And Dr. Martin Luther King surely saw that. We're going to be right back with more from Paul talking about uh, the power of questions and how you can make a difference asking questions. We'll be right back. So, Paul... You know, you just shared this amazing story about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights during that time, what was going on in the world. What I kept getting out of that during that conversation was how big a strategist Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was. And it started me thinking about, you know, the message that you're trying to present and being consistent in in the message in spite of everything else going on. As a journalist and as a professor of communications, what have you learned around this idea of asking questions about communicating your your purpose and where you want to go? I learned a lot as a, well, first as a salesperson. My first job out of college, I worked for Procter & Gamble, uh, and I wasn't in the, in the headquarters in brand management. I was a sales rep, and I had a territory on the northwest side of Chicago to sell bathroom products, toothpaste, shampoo, and deodorant, and home permanence back then. 
to retailers and wholesalers on the northwest side of Chicago. And uh, I wouldn't say I was a shy person, but I had been taught by my mother, don't bother strangers, you know, and kind of hold back and so on. Of course, a salesperson can't be like that. So I learned how to confront strangers and get them to listen to me and persuade them to buy my product. And this was a great, I hated my job because who cares whether people brush their teeth with Crest or the rival Pepsodent or whatever. And I just couldn't get uh, too committed to it. I'm a big Crest fan, by the way. Okay, well, so am I. I still (laughs) use Crest. But uh, it just wasn't important enough. And I decided what I really wanted to do was to be a journalist because I was nosy and uh, and I liked to write. But I like to write nonfiction rather than fiction. So I got into journalism and and I uh, uh, learned some things about asking questions and about communicating, uh, uh, extending knowledge, communicating, speaking or writing. Uh, I learned uh, when asking questions, first of all, be prepared. Uh, you know, what is it that you want to cover, whether you're in sales or whether you're a journalist or whether it's just a conversation with your spouse. Maybe there's, there's some problems there and, and don't be spontaneous, but give it some thought. Don't have a script, but, but have, you know, what points do you want to cover? So as a boy, as a, I guess Girl Scouts too, but as I learned as a Boy Scout is be prepared. And so if you're going to be in a situation where you're asking questions, be prepared. Uh, when uh, the person responds, uh, don't argue, but uh, ask for examples and evidence. If the person says something that you don't agree with or that is a surprise to you or that is a criticism of you, uh, ask for examples of that. Don't say, well, prove it. That's a little too antagonistic. But ask for examples of of uh, what the person is saying and ask for some evidence. Uh, play back the answers. Play back uh, the answers. Play back the answers. So and uh, say, I, I understand that what you're saying is X, Y, Z, and and try to be accurate. You know, don't try to twist it, and and see if the person agrees. Yes, that's what I'm. You know, that's what I'm trying to say. Or the person may modify uh, uh, what the person said earlier uh, to make it more reflective of what the person thinks. So play back what what the person says. Again, uh, a formal situation or an informal situation. I want to emphasize, don't argue. Uh, We're an arguing society, and uh, the error we make is that we think we can persuade the other person to our point of view if we argue. That isn't the way arguing works. Arguing works is for there's a third person who's judging, I mean, literally a judge, the plaintiff and the defendant, or the prosecutor and the defendant, and the judge decides the argument, not not the other side, uh, or a, a political campaign, the voters decide. So uh, arguing between candidates, you know, is can be effective because you can persuade the third party, the voters. Okay, i got to stop you, you for a second because... I have goosebumps all over me right now because I just got the biggest aha in the world. I never realized that about arguing. That, you know, putting, if you're having a conversation with somebody and you get into an argument, it's really not going to go anywhere unless you have that disinterested third party 
who is helping sort of mediate the conversation. Never quite realized that. And I'm going back in my mind of all these other conversations where it didn't work. And yet when somebody facilitated, once you got into the argument, that's when you really got the facts, when you well, got the data. that's the third party. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Wow. Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, that right. was so cool. <laughs> well, right. you, well, you're welcome. We are, you know, uh, people who become familiar with our culture, whether they're from Asia or Europe, uh, and they move here as immigrants or they are uh, just becoming familiar with the American way of doing things as visitors. Uh, everyone I've, uh, many people I've talked to have been in that situation say we're an arguing society. Uh, in Asia, they don't argue. It's impolite to argue. Now, they can be a difference of opinion and an exchange of views, but not really an, uh, uh, an argument. Uh, e- even press conferences held by the prime minister, reporters never ask an antagonistic question because it's considered to be rude, and we just don't do that in our society in Japan. So the questions are very um, friendly, and uh, we would say softball questions. Well, that's a reflection of their culture. In our news conferences, even I as a journalist, I don't like them. I think they're too argumentative, and I don't like to see reporters arguing with the press secretary. Uh, I, I don't mind antagonistic questions or questions that are... Uh, unfriendly. But don't argue with the press secretary, and I'm afraid that's what we see with the current administration and the past administration and going back administrations, uh, certainly back to Nixon, where this became a confrontation between the press and the president, whereas it should be a conversation that elicits information. So that's an important point about the questions that people are asking in, in any situation. Is your question designed to elicit an argument and an attack, or is it designed to actually get you good information that can move you forward in whatever you're doing? So we just have a couple of minutes left to the end of the show, and I'd love for you to share how people can reach out to you if they want to find out more and and just ask you some questions, because my listeners always have questions after the show. So it is. Well, do you want me to give my email address? I would love that if you'd be willing to do that. (laughs) Well, it's got uh, uh, two long words, but here's my email address. It's paul.janeng, and that is spelled J A N E N S C H, at Quinnipiac, Q U I N N I P I A C dot E D U. That's my email address. I'm also on Wikipedia. Oh, that's cool. I'm going to Wikipedia. And, and I think Wikipedia <laughs> has my email address, and if it doesn't, I'll have it added. And, and I will have that up on the website as well for Good. the replay. Last thought you'd like to share with my listeners? About- well, I do have a last thought, and I'll try to convey it quickly. Uh, we talked about communicating, and I talked about how to listen. Uh, I want to talk about how to communicate, how to how to how to speak and how to write. And I learned this as a journalist, and that is, and many people don't follow these basic rules, get to the point. (laughs) People don't get to the point. In fact, start with the point. Uh, Keep it short and simple, whatever it is that you're trying to communicate. You can always expand on it later. Provide examples and evidence even before you're asked for it. And this is the most important, know when to shut up. How does somebody learn when to shut up? 
through bitter experience. <laughs> I have a funny feeling that's a whole other show. <laughs> <laughs> and you've watched some amazing people not talk, including Vladimir Putin. Um, we don't have time to talk about that today, but... Um, I really want to thank you for being on the show today, and thanks, Stanford Erickson, for suggesting that I have you on because you've enlightened me on parts of my parts of history in the world. But not only that, about how to ask better questions um, with people that may be argumentative or may have a different perspective, and that's an incredible skill. Well, so you thank ask, you. You ask good questions. Well, thank you very, very much. Um, so we were here with Paul Janish, um, professor, retired professor of Quinnipiac University, and I should know that because I'm from Connecticut. But we were talking about the power of questions, and remember, everybody, the right questions truly can change your life. So what are you asking today? If you need some help, let me know. But have a great day, everyone, and thank you again, Paul, for being here. Thank you. listening to It's All About the Questions, starring Laura Stewart. Connect with Laura at itsallaboutthequestions.com and download a free workbook that will help you ask better questions starting today.